Tim behind every choice, I would say to people like, you can control everything in a startup, but there's no momentum. So what fuels you is momentum. Like for every change you make, you see a multiple fold return. So it makes the energy putting into making a change worth it, right? When it's small, it's easy to make change, but like there's no multiplier effect. It's just like, it's you making change and making change and making change. You're like, does anybody care? <laughs> and the opposite is everybody cares, but you spend a lot more time communicating, and figuring out the who and working through. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part two of our interview with Sikander Singh Cassidy, author of Choose Possibility, which you should go get your own copy on Amazon. If you missed part one, please go back and hear about her journey from investment banking to a very critical time of Google's growth from 1,000 employees to 43,000 or 46,000 employees to CEO of startups, CEO of uh, StubHub sold for $4 billion, and uh, currently venture capitalist and Wall Street Journal bestselling author. Um, Sikander, you get interviewed. I've watched, I've watched a couple of years. What's a question people don't ask you enough? What's something else you wish people would ask you more? All right. I'm going to have to think about this. So Jess, you're going to have to give me a beat when I think about what do people not ask me? Because I've been asked a lot of questions over the past 30 days. I think a question people maybe aren't asking me enough or asking, you know, themselves enough is as I am sort of, you know, driving my own success or my own kind of boat forward. What more could I be doing? What incremental choice could I be making that would drive other people's boat forward at the same time? And I understand why, because most of us, you know, like we are duly obsessed with ourselves <laughs> and just struggling to get our own shipper right. So maybe it seems like too much work to think about, you know, what could or should you be doing to sort of, you know, drive others forward at the same pace. I think that's a question we're all not asking ourselves enough of. Yeah. What's an example of what you think the answers could be? Yeah. You know, I think there are a few. So, so first and foremost, we often think that, as an example, we advocate for something for ourselves. You know, we go into our boss and we say, hey, I need this. You know, I think one of the things we can think about is like even something as simple as like, we need this. Like, I mean, even that language is a simple act of saying like, you know, and and by the way, I haven't always done this in my career. So make no mistake. Like, it's not like I'm preaching from on high. Right. But the incremental work to make something possible for someone else when you're making it for yourself is not one plus one, right? It's like one plus 1.25 or one plus 1.5. Does that make sense? Like, so there's leverage um, and efficiency when you're asking for something for yourself to ask for it for others. And I know sometimes we think it's like, this is the, this is the thing that people don't ask me about. We think that it's us or them. Like if I get this promotion, somebody else won't get it. If I get a pay raise, nobody else will get it. But I think far more often, you know, thinking about and language, like, can I get this? And can I get it for other people too? Like, imagine the power in that. So, you know, it goes from everything as simple for advocating for something for yourself to obviously, you know, there are much bigger themes going on in the world right now, like things around allyship, you know, like even when something's not affecting you, but it's affecting someone else, right? And you see, and you see that happening. That's another example. And an even better example is sometimes we don't truth tell you know, be in a meeting because we're like, oh, I'll look stupid. But you know, when you ask a question, it doesn't do or you tell a truth. 
in a meeting, it doesn't just help you, right? Like it helps everybody. It gives permission to everyone. So sometimes we hold ourselves even back and do something for how stupid we'll look, but think about the collective impact if you take that action. So sometimes there's simple things like that. Sometimes they're harder, like, you know, wow, when do I speak up on an issue that's like really sensitive, like diversity and inclusion? And sometimes it's like when you're negotiating for self, like, hey, yourself, like think about negotiating for others too. Like at least put in the we statement. Those are all examples and they're incremental choices. They're not full choices, full new choices. They're just incremental choices when we choose for ourselves. I love it. Uh, and the way you describe it makes it seem so simple to add on, you know, like it, it feels doable. Uh, yeah. it doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like you have to fight a whole second war, you know? Well, let me ask this then. Here, another question I have is, you know, successful executive, successful founder, successful CEO of multi-billionaire company, venture capitalist. I'm interested, what kind of advantages do you think you had growing up the way that you grew up to help mm-hmm. prepare you for what you've done? Yeah. So first of all, the advantage I had, and I always say this to people, and this is maybe one of the reasons I wrote the book, like choice is an extreme privilege, right? And I, while I didn't grow up with what you'd call extreme privilege, I grew up in a solidly middle-class household where my parents were, you know, doctors in a small town in Canada. By the way, it's public medicine. You don't make like boatloads of money like you do in the U.S. But But the point is like, you have plenty of security, you know, there's always food on the table, you know, there, and my parents saved well. So there was, you know, money in the bank too. So, so first of all, just realize when you're in a position of security, you have abundant choice. And so I think that is one way I grew up and I appreciate that. I'm like, I, in some ways I felt guilty writing a book because I don't have a hardship story. You know, it's like, well, people like take this book seriously because I can't, I, you know, I didn't come from nothing. Does that make sense? But neither did I come from like extreme privilege. I just came from like security, but security is a privilege. Like in the world in which we live, security is a privilege. So that's one. Number two is I think that I always tell people I grew up in a family of two doctors and they, their vocation was their passion was their purpose. But my father loved being an entrepreneur. Like he loved it. And so I guess I saw this, I, I'll say to people like possibility in my house was like in small acts and in big, like it wasn't like my dad, or dad declared like, oh, I am going to be a billionaire, you know? And by the way, lots of his entrepreneurial dreams did not work out, but he was the guy who imagined, you know, what a walk-in clinic would look like and made his practice into one, like 20 years before that became a mainstream kind of concept in medicine, which it is today, you know, like you can walk in anywhere and get service anywhere. My dad did this in a small town in St. Catharines and he branded it. He never reaped the rewards of it, but it was like an idea that big. And then it was as small as like, Hey, it's time to do taxes. Like everybody roll up your sleeves and I'm going to train you how to, you know, you know, read my books. And you'd say, well, what's like, where's the possibility in that? I'm like, well, the possibility is you learn that entrepreneurship is literally as simple as, Today, my expenses, you know, need to be less than my revenue. Or if they're not today and it's upside down, tomorrow it needs to be the reverse. And entrepreneurship isn't as small an act, as you know, as employing one other person. That is being an entrepreneur, right? It's like, and it has all the obligations and the kind of worries you'd expect about cash management. But like, it was so tangible. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think for many people, like entrepreneurship is a mystery. It was never a mystery for me. It was like just like a daily thing. Like this is entrepreneurship. It's as big as dreaming about this and as it's small as like making sure your books balance or going to the bank and getting a new set of checkbooks or like employing your first person. I mean, those are, that's all entrepreneurship. So possibility was very manageable in my household. It was just in little acts all the time. And that was my view of makership. 
Yeah, got to see that modeled, huh? Yeah, um, you have to see it modeled, right? And it's, yeah, nobody's like waiting for the day to be an entrepreneur. My dad was not waiting for an infusion of venture capital. <laughs> it's just like... No, listen, I, I can see that as such an advantage. I, you know, I grew up in a solidly middle-income Canadian family. My mom was a nurse. Yeah. My dad worked for the provincial government, right? Yeah, yeah, and you know it. They they were both quite risk-adverse. My dad, even more so than my mom. Yes, but, uh, but my mom's dad was an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And so even though I didn't say it modeled every day, I got to have that. I got to have that feeling of like, our family does this. We, this yes. is, you know, and she had a cousin and, and anyway, so I like, I had pieces of that, but yes. then there was other things that were like completely, completely fresh for me that, mm-hmm. uh, my, the guy who kind of became my mentor, he's like 16 years old and 20 years ago, this August, he started mentoring me. And within a couple of years, we've wow. become partners and we've done all these businesses together ever since it's been great. It's That's more like amazing. a brother or like a second dad or something than anything else. But, you know, I hear about him growing up in his dad's businesses, what running real estate and owning convenience stores and owning a resort and like, you know what I mean? And being around nice. it. And like, there's these lessons that he's passed on to me. Like, you know, in a small business, like owning a chain of convenience stores, his dad, mm-hmm. his dad had those, he ended up having some of those in addition to yep. these other companies. But he's like, his dad told him like, here's the thing, son, your employees are going to do a worse job than you when you leave the store at, <laughs> wow. at six o'clock to go home and yeah. have dinner with your family. But the upside is you get to go home and have dinner with your family. So like, wow. Quit being so frustrated. It's not their business. They're never going to have the passion that you have. You're paying minimum wage staff to pump gas. Like, yeah. let's be honest about what you're doing. The, don't be so frustrated. Be happy you get to go home and have dinner with your family. And she's like, these little tiny things that I kind of I kind of got from his dad. Instead yeah, of dad, I totally you know? get it. Right. I mean, I always say to people, like, my dad never sat me down, but he did say, work for yourself. And, you know, for a long, I went to, I went to university. And as you know, I went to an undergrad business school and I want to be an executive. And you know what? Within five or six years of sort of being a banker and being in a large company, like by my mid twenties, I was like, yeah, I want to work for myself. Like all those years of like, work for yourself, work for yourself. Like, you know, I was trying to discard those lessons and they came roaring back by my mid twenties. And I, I didn't, I was trying to listen and I kind of missed this in one of your other interviews. Did, were your parents like, had grown up in India and went to Africa or something? I didn't catch that. What's yeah, yeah. your parents' story? Well, I would say my mom, so both my parents were risk takers in their own way. Again, though, you would never call doctors that. My mom grew up in India, but her mother died when she was eight. Her father was crippled in the First World War. So her older brother raised her, and her father used all his pension to send her to school. And she was the youngest of of five kids that survived. I think they were like old, more in total. But like, Where in India? She grew up in Punjab, you know, we're Sikh. And so, so my mom, I mean, and, and her kind of risk-taking, if you will, like, you know, my, I mean, my mom's 91 now, but, but her risk-taking, she was in her 30, you know, in the 1930s, I mean, in 1940s and 1950s, she's the person who doesn't get married young and her father uses all his money to send her to medical school. And she like waits until she's in her mid thirties to get married. Now she still had an arranged marriage, but she literally put her career first and her father put her career first, which, you know, that's pretty extraordinary for those times in India. And then my father grew up, is Indian. Yes, he's Sikh too. But his father moved to Uganda. He was born in Kampala. His family moved to Nairobi. His father died. And my father was the oldest of eight and raised all his brothers and sisters. And then he became a doctor. And his risk taking was he didn't want to get married. So although he raised his family, he just wanted to have fun for a long time. So he actually waited until he was in his 40s. No one is in it to get married and uh, and really delayed marriage quite long, almost 40, like 39, something like that. I was 40. He was 47 when I was born. 
And, uh, and so he sort of, you know, had all his fun and then he settled down to an arranged marriage. So they both ended up in a fairly traditional marriage, if you will. And then they had a practice together in Africa, in Nairobi, and then in Tanzania. But what you remember correctly is then they, I mean, late in their life, they gave up their very well settled, comfortable life on the beaches of Africa to move to Canada because they really wanted to give us a better education. And they started over, you know, I mean, my dad was in his late forties when, when I was young and he was like in Toronto and my mom was like in an apartment, you know, doing like pulling night duty to requalify as doctors in Canada. And they gave up a lot of their, you know, established life to do that. So I always say they took one big risk in coming here, but in fact, even both of their growing up was rather unconventional. Well, how interesting to see people make big, bold choices and, Mm -hmm. and then just do what it takes to make them work. Yeah. But also like, I think the other lesson in all this is like, I'll say to people, like, if you think it's one bold choice, it's, you know, sometimes it's like big, big, small, 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 medium, one big, a bunch smaller. And this is the process of choosing possibility, right? You said, why'd you write the book? And what's the myth? The myth is it's one choice. And it's often, you know, the compounding benefits of many moves. And you don't know the incremental move that's going to create the unlock. It might be the tiniest move. It might be the biggest move. But in real time, you never know which move it is, right? In hindsight, you can look back and say, ah, that move was disproportionately important. But as we're going through it, we're just like linking choices together. So I'm going to take another right turn here for another sure. another question angle. Thinking about this experience from the earliest startup to the mm-hmm. you know multi-billion dollar exits, you know, you look at people like like a Jeff Bezos who mm-hmm. can can go from here to there and, and stay on for however many years that was, right? And yet there's so many folks that are they are the right people to get it to a certain level. Yes. And then and then maybe not the right person or, or it's not as interesting or things. And like, you know, I'm in love with Warren Buffett and Richard Branson who have like mm-hmm. holding companies yes. and they do, they do the fun stuff they want to do. And then there's yes. CEOs to yeah. run everything else. Right. Yes. Um, yes. We have so many entrepreneurs that listen to the show. When you think about the decision tree for somebody to figure out like, okay, what if I do grow something? Like, let's talk about the guy who I brought up earlier, right? His, yes. his personal net worth like just because of his equity stake and his personal net worth jumped by a hundred million in a year. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that was like a <laughs> many, you know, right. From, from a single digit million to a yes. hundred, yeah, hundred to a multiple, X, right. Exponential. Yes. Yeah. And, and has ambitions to go further, but there are, there are decisions to make about like, Hey, am I the right guy for the business mm-hmm. or the right gal for the business? And even if I am, is that what I want to do? Yes. And you know, these kind of things. So I guess my first question here is for, for those of us who've experienced the beginning or, or have had business, you know, we've been a part of some real rapid growth, but not, not to the, not to the scale of what you've run. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. And and like, you you know, StubHub for 4 billion, right? Yes. Like (laughs) what is it that as a startup or somebody who's done some rapidly growing stuff, Mm -hmm we're unlikely to appreciate about what life is like at that kind of scale. Well, I think you're hitting a couple of things that I think are the most important things. So let me just come back to them for a moment as first principles. The first is you hit the nail on the head. Do we want it? Are we the right person? Like when things are scaling, the question to keep asking ourselves, I think, is who are we? What do we love and what do we want to learn? And quite frankly, a lot of times the biggest risk we face is our own ego. It's like what we think we should do, what we need to prove to ourselves, you know, and what others will think of us if we make a choice that they don't expect. 
but I think the truth, you know, I think like not to be a cliche, but I think the truth lies within, which is really like understanding not only what you're good at, but what you want to learn. If you want to keep learning, staying in the seat is awesome. Like there is no better way to learn than sort of being the person at the wheel. I know, you know, and, and so, but I think if for whatever reason, you know, that journey makes us tired before we start and not just tired, like drained of energy. I, I will say to people, like, look at what gives you energy and drains your energy. Somehow I keep, you know, ending up back in operating roles because at the end of the day, I still get more energy from it than it drains me. That's the answer, right? Like, and I still get energy from learning. And at the day I don't, the day I'm like, you know what? I'm actually just really freaking tired. Maybe that is the day I should stop saying like, what do others think about my choices and what do I think? So I always think of like, I would say to you, think about what gives you energy and what drains your energy. And if going forward, you can see things that will continue to give you energy, like learning or, you know, acquiring a new skill or, you know, achieving the next mountain, chances are you, maybe you should stay in, right? And I think when sort of you look ahead and there's nothing to learn, there's no more impact you can have. And what you see ahead is only a drain of your energy. Like, look at the, ask yourself those three questions. For me, driving impact and learning give me energy. And so I keep stepping back into sometimes an operating role, even when I swear I'm done. So I think that's one, one thing. <laughs> and then I think the thing you don't know about that next scale, and I think this is always true, and so much of the next scale is what, and I say this as somebody who's been a founder and a CEO, so much of that next scale is not knowing what the right thing is to do. It's how to communicate it. It's how to have the courage to sort of make the decision when there's many, many, many more things at stake and complex. And the job is about bringing clarity and bringing the right people to the table to get done what needs to get done. And I think that we often think that when you're like in charge of something even bigger, the job is like you have more control. In, most, in many ways, you have less control. You have less direct control and it's much more a job of influence, even when you're the CEO. Like you think, hey, so what's the thing you don't know about the scale that's next? I'll tell you, there are many times I've been running something big and I'm like, ah, oh, when it was just my startup, I could just like, we spent all our times talking about the what. We spend no amount of time talking about how to communicate to who to convince them of the path we need to take. You know, it's like inverse, like 90% of my energy is just in figuring out the what. And, you know, when you get to the largest scale, 90% of your energy is figuring out the who, like who's around the table, what are their instinct, what are their you know, inclinations, what are their intentions, what are their inhibitions, like how do I get that person to unlock? Is that person the right person to unlock? Who's missing from the room? And it's not so more about the what, it's the how. It's communicating the how, the how, the how. You communicate the what, then you communicate the how, the how, the how, the how, the who, the how, the who, the how. So I'm not saying that to make you guys tired, I promise. I'm just telling you like that is the nature of the job because you're working you know, through others. Now, the joy of that is that you get to do it at a scale that is really fun. There is momentum behind every choice. I would say to people like, you can control everything in your startup, but there's no momentum. So what fuels you is momentum. Like for every change you make, you see a multiple fold return. So it makes the energy putting into making a change worth it, right? When it's small, it's easy to make change, but like there's no multiplier effect. It's just like, it's you making change and making change and making change. You're like, does anybody care? <laughs> and the opposite is everybody cares, but you spend a lot more time communicating and figuring out the who and working through other people. That's the one thing you should know. Interesting. I, I want to go back to one thing you said there. When you talk about bringing clarity, mm -hmm. what's a principle for, for being able to do that? I think a couple things. Number one, clarity is means distilling the intelligence out of all the information. I was just having a call this morning with a women's group that I did a book club for, for, for Choose Possibility. And we were all identifying that it's very easy to get lost in consultative mode where you collect everybody's opinions, okay? 
So to me, clarity is like you have everybody's opinions and you and I can imagine we've all seen these whiteboards that are chocked full of like everybody's bullet points information. Somebody needs to say like, out of all this thing, the distillation is these five points, like thread the needle, pull out the distillation, pull the intelligence out of the content. We all can get lost in more and more content. The job of bringing clarity is to pull the nuggets and right, the insights out of the content. That is bringing clarity. By the way, the other thing that's important about clarity is a time frame. Like, you know, what drives people crazy is a lot of information and no time frame for clarity. So sometimes clarity is about pulling out the insights in a useful way so people can see the signal from the noise and doing it in a timely way. Because even if you bring clarity, but it takes a long time to bring it, you know, people lose energy, right? So there, this is why strategy processors are brutal. They're meant to bring clarity, but they're, by the time they're done, people are like, oh my God, like we took in so much information over what period? And I'm still not clear what we're like, what's the answer? <laughs> so I think as a lead, your job as a leader is to bring clarity. That's really helpful. Maybe as we're kind of winding down here, you know, there's so many ambitious people out there. There's so many intelligent people out there and there's so few that have achieved what you've achieved. What do you think that you have done differently than not everybody else? The first thing I think I've done, and I, again, I'll just keep coming back to why I wrote the book. I think I kept choosing. People are like, what do you mean? I mean, no, I'm like, literally, I've committed the process of choosing. You know, I continually kind of try to put myself in a feedback loop of like making a conscious choice, aiming for, I always say to people, I aim for impact. And I guess, and then I come back and I choose again. And people are like, well, everybody does that. Everybody has to do that, but it's about doing it consciously. And I think it's about doing it even through failure because you have to be committed to the process of like, hey, I'm going to try this hard thing. I'm going to go through it. And I'm going to commit that to myself that whether it fails or succeed, I get the learning and I choose again. And so I always say to people, I'm somebody who just chose through success and failure. I just keep choosing. So people are like, really, is it that simple? I'm like, well, some people call that persistence. Other people call that agility. I would just call that the process of continually choosing possibility. And when things are tough, like your first instinct is to never choose again, <laughs> to just walk away from the thing. But I'm like, but you got all the learning. So weirdly, this is the time to choose again. So that's part of it. Number two, um, I think I've tried in my career to be somebody who produces results. And I don't mean results that are only positive because I've produced many results that weren't positive. But I've always felt like, hey, if I can produce impact of any kind, whether that's a learning, whether that's an outcome, whether that's failure, I know I'm bringing something to the table that accelerates us all towards the goal. And so I feel like I have tried to aim my career at having impact. And sometimes that means that like, I'm not taking a promotion or I'm taking a lateral move to learn something so I can have more impact. I think that's probably the other thing. I feel like I need to sit and think about those now. I, I, I like the answers, but now I need to internalize them. Listen, this has been great. Obviously, I think everybody should be going to Amazon or Audible and getting their own <laughs> copy of your new book, Choose Possibility. Anything else you want to leave us with? Oh, well, look, I always I will say if you think that taking risk is kind of a mighty construct, like let go of the notion. Choosing possibility means like the minimum viable action you could take today that moves you in some direction towards a goal, whether it's for discovering something new, learning something new, to avoid harm. Lots of people, you know, could might choose something new today, some incremental choice, or of course, to achieve an ambition, which is what we're used to when we think about risk taking. So I always just say like commit to making a minimum viable choice in the direction you want to go today. That's great. I love it. Well, everybody, uh, besides going to the, getting the book, you should go to choosepossibility.com and take the risk task. I took it. It was, I found it interesting. Hopefully you will too. Sikander, thank you so much for doing this. It's been great. Thanks, Jess, for having me. You bet. Bye, everyone.